0: Well, good afternoon and thank you for joining me again today for Business, The Law, and You. Julian Campbell here, and we've got another very interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we'll have a look at one of our Harvard Business Review tips. This particular one is a checklist to help you make decisions faster. Might be a lot of help there, I think. We're also going to be chatting with Christina. We're going to be talking about recognising your innovation opportunities, but right now, we're going to have a chat with Rani Gander, who's a partner with Turnbull Hill Lawyers. We're going to be talking about governing director companies. Good afternoon, Rani. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us again. So um, I suppose the first question is, what is a governing director share? Um,
1: so a governing director share is, it's fallen out of fashion over the years. Um, under We, we currently uh, work under the Corporations Act, but the old Act, was called the Companies Act of 1961. And what was created um, was a company by which there was a governing director's share, and a, and it was um, a, the governing director. And what that meant was that it was hardwired into the... I would say the modern term is called Constitution, but it used to be mm. called Memorandum Art and Articles Association. Basically, that control of the company could never leave that governing director, um, and that's because they retained, they were hardwired in as the governing director, and it's very similar to um, what I've described before is the appointer in a discretionary trust. Um, so what it meant was you could have a company, but you were always guaranteed until you decided you didn't want to be or um, passed away uh, who that governing director and who the control of the company would stay
0: mm, stay. Good. Yeah. So, so do all shareholders have the same rights in their companies?
1: Not well. It depends on the company. So, in a lot of companies, you can have different shareholdings. Um, the most common is say ordinary, and that's where a shareholder can um, vote and receive dividends. And then there's different classes. But with these kind of companies, the governing directors, then no, the share you can have different shareholders, but unlike in a, a normal constitution today where shareholders retain control, can outvote directors and things like that. This is actually the reverse of that. So it's really up to the governing director who has control and what rights attach to the shareholders, but they are not um, necessarily treated
0: equally. So he, is the, he or she, as the governing uh, director, mm-hmm. basically makes makes all the rules. Yes, Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 So so why is it this type of company? Why would we go this way?
1: Um, so traditionally, my understanding is they were used to avoid death taxes. Um, death taxes were, I have to say, before my time. <laughs> um, but it was a, a way with, particularly if um, most of the wealth was created in, say, the husband's name, and he wanted to pass that across to his wife, but her not had the burden of um, death taxes. It was created so that the company owned the assets, such as, say, the family home and and shares and various things. And then he, under his will, could pass that share and the governing director share under, um, under his will, which meant that basically the wife was inheriting around getting out of um, death taxes. So I think that, and the other uh, reason it was often used was in multi-generational businesses because they wanted to involve their um, children, but they also wanted to make sure that they always had the final say.
0: Mm. Uh, So, uh, um, I mean, I would think it'd be quite useful just for that purpose alone, especially in a small company where uh, you don't really want the uh, shareholders to uh, be... Voting you out. So do you think this uh, governing director companies will be used again?
1: I think they should. So we I know that we're starting to look at them again um, as an effective tool, sometimes in estate planning. But also if you've got multiple generations that are entering into a business or have assets, that um, you want to pass across, and you may want to pass a specific asset across, so it could be your business, it could be shares that the company owns, um, and you want that to go to a a particular person, one of the ways to do that is under your will, um, or when you are ready to, you transfer that control. Um, So similar to with a a family trust, you're really looking at who the appointer is, because that's Person who's going to decide uh, who gets what um, and can get rid of the trustee. It's the same kind of concept. So I think that there's a a good place for them, and they're probably something that I think will come back into fashion.
0: So um, you mentioned that you you are looking at it, and obviously estate planning is quite important. Can mm-hmm. you can you switch over an existing company to uh, a governing director company?
1: Um. It, well, you could, with the shareholder's vote, you okay. could bring in another constitution that would uh, would allow that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, there is the potential of, of that.
0: So so what are the key considerations for shareholding when considering setting up your company?
1: Well, if, if we just made it broader to any company, really, I guess the thing you're thinking of is what rights? Do you want the shareholders to have? So, um, I would also recommend because when you set up a company, you don't know how many parties are going to be involved. Mm. If you're setting up a company, um, one thousand two hundred shares is a pretty good number because it's divisible by a lot. So, a lot of the time, you've got to, you know, um, if you're setting up shares, don't set up one share or mm. two shares mm. or ten shares. I would try and do, you know, a thousand two hundred because it just makes it easier. Um, if you want to bring in partners. So think about the number of shares um, you want to set up. Uh, think about the rights you want to attach. So some people, you may just want them to be able to receive an income, but you don't want them necessarily to have voting rights. So it's important that you you give them the right class of share. And then the other thing you've got to think about is um, with there's two key components of Uh, An ordinary minority, which is 50% of the shareholding, and a special minority, which is 75%. So, again, thinking about control when you're giving people shares is going to be key because if things don't go to how you plan, you want to make sure that you can retain control or at least
0: get control back. Mm. Well, that's uh, some great, great uh, tips there because uh, I didn't know about those particular companies and I know that uh, control of a company is, is very, very important.
1: Yes, and at, at the moment it, it stays with the shareholdings, but as I said, in the past it hasn't mm-hmm. and there's, there's a good reason to maybe look at whether it, it should go back that way in, mm-hmm. in certain circumstances.
0: Yeah, Yeah, great. Well, thanks very much for your time again, Ronnie. We'll have a chat with you again next month. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Ronnie Gander there from Turnbull Hill Lawyers looking at uh, governing director share companies. And uh, sounds like yeah, something that could well be useful. And you're listening to Business, the Law, and You on 2NURFM. Time to have our chat with Christina. Good afternoon, Christina.
2: Good afternoon, Julian.
0: So, we're going to talk about recognising your innovation opportunities
2: yes and actually also acknowledging whether your organization is innovative and you're not realizing it we are uh, we were with a, a group of executives from a, from a major organization yesterday uh, and and entered into a conversation around innovation and what we discovered was that they were indeed extremely innovative but they themselves didn't realize it so i think that's a a really important thing to celebrate if you are doing it and and you're not recognizing it but also, so which leads to two two things: how do you use um, your capacity for innovation in an organisation? How do you ensure that you are allowing capacity for innova- innovation in the organisation? Uh, and lots of organisations just now, small businesses, large businesses, have just gone through potentially one of the most innovative periods of their life. And I know that we were talking earlier uh, about a, a business in in Musselbrook. You said was very.
0: Um, severely hit by mm. the pandemic. Mm. Yeah, so um, you're, you're right. I mean, uh, I think uh, well, even them people that sit down and have their formal innovation or you know team meetings and let's look at innovation don't always see all the one the possibilities within their organisation. And I think that the uh, the, uh, the tra- uh, challenging year we had last year um, has opened a lot of people's eyes to what things they could do.
2: Yes, indeed it has, and you know some of the. I know there were some um, restaurants that had to close, and mm. so they then did the pre You know, here's the raw raw products. Find here we are on YouTube teaching you how to cook these raw products into one of our favourite recipes. Um, so that you know that was one uh, innovation. Though all the things that happened technology-wise with the respirators um, and you know the distilleries that that then ended up making hand sanitizers. That's quite a common story now. Um, but, you know, the, the, it, there were lots of innovative people that p- pivoted, um, you know, there were lots of consultants that took their entire businesses online. We we ended up running whole events online, whole three-and-a-half-day trainings online. Um, so that, that constant pivot that happened, that's all part of your innovation process, you know. That's all part of what do I need to change, how do I respond to what the market wants, what the market needs, in this case, what the market has forced us to do. Uh, but really... You know, the most successful organisations actually make space for Mm. conversation around, and even if they don't call it innovation, you know, even if it's a, here's our new ideas department or here's our crazy ideas department or here's, if you have an idea for the business, this is where you put it. And the big companies, we hear their stories. You know, we've we've heard what Google did. We've heard, we hear what, you know, organisations like Zappos or Amazon, et cetera, do to encourage innovation within their organisations. We don't so often hear about what the smaller companies and what, what our local businesses and our SMEs um, do to engage their their people in innovation. And it could be they have workshop strategy days, which are, you know, very productive um, a lot of the times. I know a lot of the times people hear strategy day and people roll their eyes. But, you know, I think they can be used so effectively and they should be a, a, a source of enjoyment and a source of creativity and, uh, you know, that whole innovative feel. And I, I know yesterday I made a comment. Uh, I said to the group, we're about to go for morning tea, uh, afternoon tea, sorry. And I said, you know, the, the phrase, I'm between you and, and afternoon tea just came to mind, but I don't really want to use that because I hope that you're having such a great time that afternoon tea is just really going to get in the way of, of more productivity. Uh, so I, I think it's the way we approach these things and the freedom we give people to expand mindset and how we set things up. And you and I have spoken around innovation and how it's the whole feel in the room. You know, mm. how are you making the room a little different? How are you encouraging conversation? Is anyone taking over? Are you moderating properly? What kind of games are you playing? How much fun are you having?
0: Mm. And, you, and you mentioned the uh, the business in Musselbrook, and uh, I've just had three days up in Mus- Musselbrook judging the uh, the business awards for the uh, Musselbrook Chamber. Um, and I have to say, I mean, I've... I've I've judged a lot of business awards over the years. I have to say, I have never seen so many outstanding businesses. Uh, in the past, I've I've had, to, you know, there was obvious winners uh, mm. in in the judging, but this this group that uh, I, I visited, um, they, I think the biggest thing that stood out to me was passion the the uh, the passion for their business, Um, Mm. and that passion was not just the owners, but that passed right the way through to the team, and and the teams were passing it on to the customers. And uh, I I mean, in fact, it was very hard to decide, you know, who which was a better business. Um,
2: Yeah, isn't and isn't it? You know, we we see examples of that. It's how you treat um, how you treat the people within Mm. your organisation. That culture. And I've been very fortunate to have, you know, experienced firsthand the culture at Zappos and experienced firsthand the culture at Google, at Googleplex mm. uh, and, and, they, and, and Disney. Like, seriously, Imagineering Disneyland was just, there was a 94-year-old that was traveling in every day to work, even though he'd been retired for 20 years. Yeah. So he was driving himself in. He, he, you know, was clearly welcomed everywhere. He was one of the most clever illustrators. Um, and ideators for new stories, and he was still he was still going there, mm. so the places that you want to be where and it 's not that hard, all you have to do is treat people with respect and you have to allow them the ability to have conversations and to contribute. People want to contribute, they want to feel valued mm. and you know we 've talked about intrinsic extrinsic motivation before within within large and small businesses. Um, and it's not that, you know, monetary reward only gets you so far. It's the recognition um, and the appreciation that you are shown that is the real reward for the things that you do. And the other you know, thing know, the dollars, the dollars don't go too and, astray, but they're not the main motivator.
0: And the other thing is that it's not just a question of paying lip service to it. You know, we, mm. we've talked about a lot of this sort of stuff over and over again, and, and people pay lip service to customer mm. service, but these people... That I visited okay. were just, it was just so, so obvious. So they were living it.
2: Yeah, and that's important. Mm. But you know, I, I often think if people say it often enough, eventually it. it will take off and yeah. they will live it. Yeah. Uh, so, But I, I'm totally with you. Like, just do it. Just yep. do it.
0: Yep. Great. Well, we'll have a chat again next week.
2: Look forward to it, have, have a great week. safe week
0: if it's not too wet.
2: <laughs> let's, let's hope it dries up a little bit.
0: Christina there with uh, talking about uh, recognising your in- innovation opportunities and, uh, yeah, sometimes we don't often see them and I know that uh, the COVID uh, brought about many businesses looking at that, but uh, we should keep keep looking at that innovation. And you're listening to Business, the Law and You on 2NURFM. Just time for our Harvard Business Review tip and this particular one, a checklist to help you make better decisions faster. Decision-making overload is a common experience among managers, but you can process choices more efficiently and achieve better outcomes by using a checklist. And here's seven items. First of all, write down five company goals that will be impacted by the decision. This helps you avoid the rationalisation trap of making up reasons for your choices later. Secondly, write down at least three realistic alternatives. Thirdly, write down the most important information you are missing. Fourth, write down the impact your decision will have a year from now. Fifth, get buy-in from a team of at least two. Hearing different perspectives reduces your bias, but bigger groups have a diminishing return. Sixth, write down what was decided as well as why and how much the team supports the decision. This increases commitment and helps you measure results. And finally, seven, schedule a follow-up in a month or two to make course corrections. So those interesting points. Decision-making can sometimes be a bit challenging. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we're going to talk about collaboration in your business with Tabitha Cato from Sincerous Mindset Coaching. We'll have a minute on innovation with Christina and some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for business, the law and you at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week. And as Will Rogers once said, don't let yesterday take too much of to die.